Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Rational Security. The Cold War is hot. I am Shane Harris, your host of The Daily Beast. I am here joined as always by my friends Tamara Kaufman Woodis of the Brookings Institution and World Traveler. Hello, Tamara. Hi, Shane. And uh, my friend Benjamin Woodis, also of the Brookings Institution and noted road trip enthusiast. Hello, Ben. Hi. Shane and I took a road trip last weekend. We did take a road trip. And what did we do on that road trip? We ate lots of junk food. We ate junk food. And we did stand-up comedy. We did do stand-up comedy For together. the first time in my life. And we had a Twitter war. We did have a Twitter war. We were misbehaving a lot during a conference that we went to in Lexington. So much. Yeah, we got busted by uh, Tamara, who clearly saw that Ben and I should have been paying more attention to the the very lucid and delightful panel before us. But Well, and um, I was starting to feel a little threatened by the budding bromance. Were you? Really? Just a little. I thought you loved bromances. <laughs> I'm a bromance enthusiast. You are a bromance enthusiast. <laughs> bromance That's enthusiast. That's how I should have introduced <laughs> I should have gone with that. I went with the traveling theme, but really it's a bromance theme. Um, this week uh, on today's show, uh, a lot of uh, fun stuff in store. Crazy stories this week. Drones are falling from the sky. Is the president safe? We're going to talk about the links between autocracy and terrorism. Uh, and Russian spies who are apparently too dumb to watch CNBC or read any book by Michael Lewis. Um, why don't we start with Ben? Ben, take us off with your wordplay this week. All um, right. A drone, I'm gonna, well, a drone carrying meth crashed in Mexico. A drone crashed at 3 a.m. on the White House grounds flown by a drunk intelligence agency employee. Um, please explain why drones are falling from the sky with methamphetamines and trying to kill the president. Uh, well... So, first of all, it was a bad week for, for drones. Um, you know, it was only a matter of time before the drug cartels started to uh, try to move meth over the border using drones. Uh, I think they will continue to try, but this first uh, episode was not all that successful. Um, and so in northern Mexico, we had a drone crash, and looks like they just tried to put a little too much on the drone and you know these were they things, drunk too when they were flying uh, we don't know we yeah. don't know who they were but the um, high on meth probably but the drones uh, you know those payload limits are actually pretty serious and if you exceed them they will not fly properly uh, back a couple years ago when I tried to organize a drone dog fight through lawfare which was we called the lawfare drone smackdown my kids and I uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what our drone could actually carry. And the answer was very little. You know, the rotors are very unstable if they're not perfectly balanced. And so you can't actually overload it relative to its payload capacity. And, and this poor drone, I think, just was more meth than, than a poor drone can bear. Um, so Sad little drone. It went, it's really tragic. So it went down. Is it subject meth. to mandatory minimums? 
Well, it's going to get deported, you know. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> they don't a, even give it a trial. It no was, due process no due, for drones? Exactly. So, um, and then a few days later, you know, that was the sort of weird, creepy story, drone story yeah. of the week. But then it really had to take a back seat to the 3 a.m. drunk intelligence community officer from the National Geospatial Agency mm -hmm. Who, um, you know, as John Stewart said, don't drone drunk, no dr <laughs> drunk droning. Um, who f decided the right thing to do at 3 a.m. was to do some surveillance of the White House. Um, so that drone appears also to have crashed. Um, contrary to a story in uh, Defense One yesterday, which seemed to suggest that it may have been taken down by. Uh, White House drone jamming, drone jamming, drone jamming software. Yeah. Um, it seems to have died of of natural causes. And can I just say this makes me sad? Not simply because the drone died, but it would have been so badass if the White House had had a drone Wi-Fi jammer right? just on all the time in case somebody I mean, flew a drone nearby. Your kids had one at the drone smackdown. That, that's Indeed. right. So, so this is an important thing. First of all, you know, drone. Wi-Fi signal jamming is not hard, right. um, and if anybody uh, looks at Lawfare this week, I, I reposted the section from the discussion of the drone smackdown of how we did that that Wi-Fi. Oh, you're still so proud of um, that. I'm pretty proud of it. It was oh. it was really cool. I was there refereeing that, and it was uh, 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 pretty pretty sweet to see actually. And so I I I think and and the interesting thing about that drone jamming was that we learned how to do it not from any technical expertise, but from um, uh, a YouTube search. And I wanted to figure out how I could take out a Wi-Fi signal. And I figured there would be some cheap Wi-Fi jamming product that I could buy. But in fact, um, there is just a, an app you can download for an Android device that turns your Android device into a system that will take down virtually any Wi-Fi network, including uh, the ones that these drones operate on. Now, some of them operate on more sophisticated radio channels, but almost any radio broadcast can be jammed. And so I think they're really, actually, the Defense One story, though it didn't describe what happened here, really does describe what how you might protect an area against uh, Cheap invasion, invasion by cheap small drones. And, you know, I'm sure that a sophisticated military or a sophisticated force ca can build all sorts of defenses around it. But if you're relying on uh, cheap over the air stuff, you are pretty vulnerable to that kind of jamming. So but here's the reason I bring all these drones <laughs> up, other than drones falling out of the sky just being kind of badass and cool which is um, Gabby Blum and I have just written a book uh, called, and you should all buy it, by the way. It's called The Future of Violence. Um, and um, it is about the dissemination and uh, uh, proliferation of technologies of attack and surveillance from the state level down to the level of individuals and small groups and criminal gangs and just individual scary people. And so here we had, in the space of a week, two incidents, one in which Mexican drug traffickers are using drones 
and the second in which somebody is triggering a Secret Service, uh, latest Secret Service incident using drones. Uh, both seem to be relatively harmless for now, but it makes you wonder how long is it before uh, people are using uh, small unmanned aerial vehicles for things that are much less amusing and much more terrifying so what than we, these two incidents. So what are we what are we really worried about in this context? I mean, we, we were just talking about how this drone in Mexico crashed because it's overloaded with the payload, and so it seems sort of at least in the current context of this rotocopter or this quadcopter, I guess it was that they used. You're not going to have somebody with an explosive payload loaded onto it, right? But like, but talk about how. Well, but what about like an aerosolized bioweapon? Yeah, that or, doesn't yeah, weigh very right. much. Or how trivially easy is it to get just a little bit of a stronger drone? And like, in other words, how hard would it have been for somebody who wasn't just drunk and screwing around, presumably on the roof of an apartment building across from the White House, to have actually loaded something up here that could have done damage to people? So, first of all, I would not exclude the possibility of the ex delivery of an explosive payload. Um, you know, a medium-sized drone can carry a payload of a few pounds. That's certainly what Amazon is is talking about with their, um, you know, delivery systems. A few pounds of explosives is a, is a substantial problem, depending on where you land and detonate it. Um, secondly, uh, I do think that the point that Tamara makes is exactly right. If you imagine and this is one of the examples that Gabby and I use in the introduction to our book, what if uh, the anthrax attacks, rather than having been sent in sealed envelopes and labeled, you know, now we have anthrax, go get on Cipro. What if you'd taken a small UAV and flown it over a stadium? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think that is, you know, that's not necessarily a whole lot of weight. In and the terms. panic alone would have been tremendous. Would have, would have been tremendous. Times, yeah. And I think these these sorts of attacks, and I don't want to, you know, don't want to give anybody any ideas about them. But I do think the more you have the capacity to do these kinds of flights, um, the more you have to ask the question, who's going to use them for what, and how scared should we be of that? And then finally, if Gabby were here, she would say, she would add something else, which is, what happens when the drones are much smaller even than this? And that you're talking about an insect-sized drone, perhaps that could deliver a lethal payload in the form of an injection of some kind of a poison. Uh, the example that Gabby always uses is, you find a spider in your bathtub, and maybe you don't know if it's a real spider or a robotic spider. Now, that sounds like a fantasy, but if you had said 10 years ago that a drunk agency employee is going to be flying a UAV over the White House at 3 in the morning, that would have sounded like a right. fantasy, too. And these things are becoming smaller and more powerful by the three-month period. And so I do think you got to think about it. You know... I I want to play a little bit of a devil's advocate. Um, I don't want to downplay the threat too much, but you know the the drunken droner or the um, <laughs> ill thought out uh, drug smuggling attempt um, isn't that different in terms of threat profile or common sense countermeasures uh, than 
people with unvaccinated kids mm. uh, going to a crowded place like Disneyland. It's um, it, it's a foreseeable challenge, and we know what appropriate countermeasures are. But for what and in the case of the drunken droner, but for whatever reason, the Secret Service had not thought to put those countermeasures in place. Just as we know that everybody should be vaccinated, and if they're not, then we're going to have disease outbreaks when uh, people who, you know, willfully don't vaccinate their kids show up in crowded places. So if that continues to be a trend, we need to start, you know, uh, enforcing vaccination requirements if we want to present, prevent those disease outbreaks. Isn't this a, a manageable threat, at least up to a certain level? Well, so I think with, with the caveat, at least up to a certain level, obviously, yes. Um, and if you stopped the development of drone technology where it is today, um, then I think you could say the worst that would happen is you'd have some hobbyists who, with some accidents, and look, there was a kid in New York killed by his drone. Um, it came down and severed his, his artery, and he died. And I have a video of um, a, a rodeo event in Virginia in which, which was being filmed by a drone that decided to crash into the stands um, and, you know, hurt somebody. Uh, so it won't be completely casualty-free, but it's at an entire, entirely manageable level of accidents and, um, and certainly very limited attack capability. I think the problem is, and the scary thing is, that the technology is developing very quickly. And like all computer-based technology, it sort of seems to develop at an exponential rate in terms of power and capability. And one thing that people are really, really good at is figuring out how to use new technologies to kill each other. And that's, you know, um, that's just something that we seem to do kind of effortlessly. And I find it hard to believe that the power of remote standoff flight will not be used by individuals just as it has been used from, by militaries to do nasty things to one another among its many other positive uses. One thing I found so interesting in conversation I had actually with a cab driver, which are among usually the most interesting conversations you have in Washington. Certainly if you ask Tom Friedman. Is that, yeah, yeah, he's, he's into this too. <clears throat> I was talking to cab drivers way before Tom Friedman. If you're listening. <laughs> Trendsetter. Sure I was. Um, but no, was, this guy was talking to me and he said, you know, can you believe this thing about this drone crashing on the, on the, on the, on the south lawn of the White House? And I thought he was going to say something like, you know, maybe kind of like what Ben was just talking about. Can you believe all these different ways people have to kill us? His first reaction was, and they want us to believe at the White House that they have these missiles that could shoot down a plane if it was coming for Washington. What a crock. And it was interesting how this event had convinced this guy that actually we were totally unsecure and that all the things that have been built up after 9-11 that we want to believe are here in the air defense systems, which there are air defense systems in Washington where you can that's been documented. He thought that was just all for show and that this was sort of the finally the act that pierced the veil of this security theater and demonstrated, and, and he, you say probably not incorrect in being suspicious given how many people have shot at the White House recently, but you know, that, that it, it reminded him of how insecure he believes that we actually are. And I just thought it was a, a, not the reaction that I had, it was sort of a counterintuitive one, but it, it makes a lot of sense if a drone can get through 
for the White House, then, you know, why not something bigger, right? So I think it's wrong. It's, um, I think it's wrong, and, too. And, and I but think the, 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 the example that shows that it's wrong, I, you know, you both remember, I'm sure, when that weird German guy, Baird Rustin, uh, flew a Cessna. Yeah, an actual plane. An actual plane yeah. through the Soviet air defenses and landed it on Red Square. Oh, I think you're talking about the guy who crashed into the White House. No, 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 no. That was a different... He, he that, was not a strange German. Yeah, he was not a strange German. Oh. He was, They're always no, up to this. Guy. You could see why I was confused. It was, a, it was a small plane, and he flew it from Germany and just kept going and landed, landed it Red in Square. Red Square. Yeah. And... Um, you know, the Soviet air defenses were not built for something that small. Um, and, you know, it was very embarrassing to them. Um, but I don't think it actually showed that they couldn't have repelled a major NATO attack, for example. Um, so there's some, there's some de minimis lower threshold that, you know, defense systems aren't meant to protect against. Well, I don't know. I fully expect that the White House air defense system is now going to be... Um, building a full-scale drone oh, yeah. defense system, and, and the contract for this is going to be mega. Oh, well, yeah. they should just go to Lawfare and look up how to turn their Android <laughs> device totally. into, because, you know... Drone killing is cheap and it's easy. It's not hard. And you know the other thing going to happen, too, is I spent a little about 20 minutes yesterday calling apartment buildings nearby the White House, figuring it was sort of like, you know, there's one... There aren't any that there, close. There's a couple, yeah, there's like a couple within a block or two. And actually, the building I used to live in in D.C. is managed by the that company owns it. So I called and I said, is there people in the lobby, has the Secret Service been calling you? But it makes me wonder if now they're going to be looking at, you know, well, this roof deck is a problem, or what are these balconies that are facing the White House? I mean... Presumably, the range on a quadcopter is not that far. So, with somebody, if you oh, well, some, I mean, some, some of some of those little guys can fly pretty far. Well, I mean, could if have you been farther away. If then. you look been. at if you look at the there's an incredible I forget which of the drone companies an incredible set of videos that one of the companies had a competition among their users for like the best videos you could take with your drone. And some guy flew it all the way across Niagara Falls, uh-huh. in in through the mist. There were flights over the Grand Canyon. Just the guy who flew it through fireworks in some city. Too. Yeah, I mean, that some of the, some of these things have pretty good range, yeah, and so they have a fair degree door. of autonomy yeah. in their flight too. Oh boy. Okay. Um, Tomorrow, uh, Freedom House's annual Freedom in the World report has just been released. Uh, it highlights the links between autocracy and terrorism. Uh, so the question is, does democratic growth have anything to do with American national security? Tell us, tell us the answer in your wordplay. Sure. Uh, well, I was uh, fortunate to, uh, to be one of the speakers at the launch event for the Freedom House annual report. And, you know, they do these rankings of every country in the world um, assessing on a 14-point uh, scale, are they free, partly free, or not free? Uh, and one of the big themes of their report this year was that terrorism is both um, a consequence of uh, repressive governance and uh, a result. Hmm. Um, uh, sorry, a, <laughs> let me try that again. <laughs> a driver and a consequence, uh, a cause and an effect. And um, their argument is that the lack of democratic governance creates an enabling environment for terrorism. Um and also that governments exploit terrorist threats as a justification for repressive measures. And the second part, I think, is fairly obvious and non-controversial. Um, but the first part, I think, is worthy of a little bit of exploration. 
Uh, it's certainly true, as they demonstrated with their statistics, that well over 90% of the deaths um, due to terrorism over the last year took place in countries they had designated as not free. Um, but I think the relationship is actually a little more complex than, than they describe. And, you know, I, ISIS is a great example here. Um, that this is a, a, a violent extremist movement that emerged as a result of state failure. Um, the weakness and ultimate breakdown of political institutions in Iraq, the alienation of Sunnis from institutions that were not functioning for them, uh, and then Syria, of course, collapsing into civil conflict, and, and terrorist safe, safe havens emerge very frequently in situations of sustained conflict and conflict zones. Um, so it's, it's just a good reminder that if we want to address terrorism in a fundamental way, not just sort of beat back a threat uh, that will then become resurgent as soon as we're no longer paying attention or applying force, we have to get, we have to pay attention to the governance structures um, and even if the United States, after the experience of the last decade plus in Iraq and Afghanistan, is understandably reluctant to be in this state building business, somebody has got to be in the state building business if we don't want terrorist movements to just spring back up. So does this prove the neocons right then? <laughs> um, I I don't know that it's uh, that it's quite that simple because obviously functioning political institutions um, don't sort of uh, jump off the tanks that, that uh, come in in, in the midst of a counterterrorism campaign, uh, or in the case of the anti-ISIS campaign, the F-16, since we, we have no tanks uh, in Iraq or Syria. Um, but I, I do think it's worth paying closer attention in a preventive sense, not just in a sort of post-conflict sense. Uh, you know, what can be done in cases where we already have fragile states, you know, whether it's a, a fragile democracy like Tunisia, which is still really kind of finding its sea legs, are there more things we can do to reward democratic progress and strengthen political institutions? Or if you have a place like Venezuela, where, you know, oil prices are, are falling and the Venezuelan state may well um, face tremendous challenges just maintaining basic functions in the face of this, uh, is our role just to step back and, and smile at that? Or should we worry about the consequences of that um, in terms of, of violence, civil conflict, and potential national security threats? Okay, but Tamara, there's the natural response to this is it's not 2002. And you, yes, we can look around the world and say there's a lot, there's a relationship between uh, authoritarianism and, and all sorts of bad outcomes, both a causal and an effect relationship. But there's also a relationship at least as strong between the effort to do anything about that and even worse outcomes, whether it's in Iraq or in all these countries that we were very excited about as a sort of Arab Spring matter that then turn out to be really bad. Um, and so my question is, and I'm, I, you know, I, I agree with you that in the long run, you need 
you need to democratize, you need to have more freedom in order to avoid stoking uh, ideologies that are, that are you know, terrible and that produce bad stuff. But what about the action problem? Okay, so I, I think those are two very, very different categories of cases that you just laid out. And I, I understand the tendency to overgeneralize from Iraq, but there is no other case in this post-9-11 era where the United States uh, looked at an autocratic government and said the, very ex the mere existence of this autocratic government presents a threat to American national security is so dire that we're going to mount a massive invasion. Well, there is another. There is a case, which is the Taliban. Uh, okay, it wasn't the autocratic nature of the Taliban. It was the direct cooperation between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, which carried out the 9-11 attacks. There was no such direct link in the Iraq case. The argument that the Bush administration made about Iraq was that the nature of this government is that it is so far outside international norms on domestic behavior and international behavior, it's got such a bad track record that it simply cannot be tolerated. The potential for threats to emerge is so great, and the threats that might emerge are so grave that we cannot tolerate the possibility, and we must go do something about it now. It was a preventative argument. Very different and very singular, I would argue. Now, the Arab Spring, I think, is an entirely different question. Um, first, because there's not a problem of action here. This was not a case where the United States was going in and toppling governments. Most of these governments, let's remember, were strategic partners of the United States. And nothing um, hampered American security policy in the Middle East more than the fall of Hosni Mubarak. Uh, nothing scared American national security professionals about their ability to operate in the Middle East more than the fall of Hosni Mubarak and what might follow. But the other thing to remember is that Egypt had a terrorism problem under Mubarak. Uh, it wasn't the fall of Mubarak that created the insurgency that now exists in Sinai. It is, however, the very repressive approach that the current Egyptian government has taken toward that low-level insurgency that has exacerbated it into a much bigger problem that we have today. But Mubarak had terrorism problems. He could not resolve them himself, and his successors are facing the same challenges. So I just don't see a, a problem there with respect to external intervention in the same no, way. No, but there, but there is, you know, with the exception of Tunisia, there is no real example, and I'm not sure Tunisia is an example, it's a good example of liberalization, but I'm not sure there's a good example of the common sense proposition that, you know, if you liberalize, you reduce, um, you, you reduce the capacity of states to produce terrorist threats and, um, and you know, and other bad things. Um, look, I, I think it is a very good point that we don't yet have a clear case, except in, you know, in countries that are already in an environment uh, where their neighbors and those who have strong influence over them are already democracies, where conflict resolution has vastly reduced terrorism. And, you know, Northern Ireland, I think, would be um, probably the most important case to single out in that regard. It's not that, you know, uh, 
um, terrorism disappeared entirely with uh, the Good Friday Accords. But it, it, the rug was pulled out from under those who were uh, continuing to use that tool. They were marginalized and ultimately ostracized to the point of irrelevance. And that, I think, is the goal. Not that you completely eliminate the problem, but that you, um, you really uh, reduce or eliminate the permissive environment for the problem. I'm staying out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wittis v. Wittis, and Shane is just watching the action. Well, I don't know if oh. it's Wittis v. Wittis. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's Wittis believer versus Wittis head scratcher. Uh, or a Wittis skeptic versus Wittis uh, optimist. Which is that the usual dynamic too? I mean, you strike me as both fairly optimistic. Well, not when we talk about torture. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is all the time. Joke. Right, oh, you're dear. you're pro torture, right? right? Well, I'm, I'm then I'm Wittis smiler, and you're Wittis skeptic. Yeah, you know, I'm just I'm very skeptical of torture. Just just for the record, we're 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 not being serious. <laughs> Noted torture apologist. Noted torture ben apologist. Wittis. All right, time for my wordplay. Um, <clears throat> and actually, I'm very excited because this is going to involve a short dramatic reading. Are you ready? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I can <clears throat> hardly wait. Hello, Evgeny. Can you talk? I need help. Tass wants, I need help. Tass wants very much. I don't know how it came down from the top, but they need three questions with regard to New York Stock Exchange. What would be interesting to us? <laughs> can you help write something? <laughs> So that is a recorded transcript. <laughs> yes, and it sounds just like that. This is the transcript from the FBI intercepting the conversation between Evgeny Boryakov, also known as Zenya, which I thought was a clothing store. Uh, oh, those tricky Russian yeah. nicknames. And Igor Sporyshev. Uh, so Igor Sporyshev was a... is uh, now no longer in the United States, a, a Russian uh, intelligence officer in the United States undercover as a Russian diplomat. And Evgeny Buryakov was a banker in Manhattan in the United States under non-official cover, a so-called illegal, um, who was arrested two days ago in New York uh, in this bust-up of a Russian uh, spy ring. Uh, this is the first one that we've had since the, the breakup of the, the, the 10 spies with Anna Chapman. Everyone remembers her, the very glamorous spy back in, I guess it was 2010, which inspired the show The Americans, which is uh, coming back. Very excited. Um, and why I sort of I was fascinated by this bit of this story and why I chose to read this is that, so as we reported in the Daily Beast yesterday, this was on, on Tuesday, these guys were somehow feeding questions to the TASS news agency, the Russian state-owned news agency, apparently to allow their journalists or help their journalists ask questions in interviews of people who knew things about the New York Stock Exchange so that this could be then fed back to the economic intelligence section of the SVR, of the Russian intelligence That's agency. so tricky. You get journalists to ask questions on the record? Can you believe it? And then you can use the information they produce? You can use that. The wow. Russians have just figured out this dastardly ploy. I mean, you got to be kidding me with this. Can like, you, I, you know what? you got to be kidding me with that accent, Shane. I'm you, sorry. Oh, come on. Oh, it's, it's a little too Hungarian, maybe. But I, I like, read Flash Boys. Like, read, I mean, they wanted to know about things like like electronic transfer trading, trading robots. I mean, this is, I mean, it's just Google it. Right. What in the world? Or apply to Harvard Business School. Right. I also think it's just fantastic that, like, TASS is still... Like shilling for the you know the SVR. I interviewed the former KGB general who ran U.S. operations, and he was like, 
I worked for Radio Moscow as the UN correspondent in 1959. All my friends were at pass. Nothing has changed. <laughs> it was great. We the used, Cold War is hot. The Cold War is hot. But I think we need to send the SVR a let me Google that for you link. Seriously. Oh, definitely. Um, you know. Yeah, and, and on a serious note, I should say, like, look, okay. Counterintelligence professionals who I know and, you know, would tell you that there, there are sophisticated Russian operations working inside the United States. There are sophisticated Russian cyber operations working against, you know, the U.S. government, U.S. companies. And in this, you know, fairly only 20-some page complaint, they may, the government may have been picking out the most ridiculous instances on which they were going to charge these guys because they don't want to give away maybe some of the other sophisticated plots they're watching. But really, if like, this is, you know, the, the creme de la creme of, you know, Russian intelligence running against the U.S. financial system. I mean, maybe we should just totally breathe easy because this is just, these guys were, well, but it and, seems and, like an idiotic ploy. And well, it's like, the second, it's the second big Russian spy ring that's been broken up that seems clownish. Anna Chapman being, pink being, panther-like clownish. Being yeah. the first. Yeah, yeah, well, and you also just have to wonder, I mean, presumably it takes years of preparation and thousands of dollars of investment and government investment to place somebody like this non-official exactly. cover guy. I mean, it's it's just like Jack Ryan and Jack Ryan's shadow recruit, right? He's of working course. secretly for the CIA at a Wall Street firm. And the idea that this is what they would use him for? I mean, if it's it's kind of like you send a guy to go get a PhD in astrophysics and then ask him to make you an egg salad sandwich. Exactly. I mean, this is somebody who was here on non-official cover, which means that he has no connections back to the government. This is supposed to be one of your most valuable intelligence assets that you have. Why use him for something? And, and what's also interesting, and I almost wonder if, you know, I'm sure, I don't know if this was deliberate, but I'm sure that the FBI and the Justice Department were cackling as they wrote this complaint. Because that conversation that I was, you know, interpreting for you was one <laughs> That's of the a generous word. Yeah. Was one of the few instances in which these guys actually broke operational security and talked on the phone. And so this became one of the, the sort this of This is how they caught them? This is it's not how they caught them, but it's one of the th it was one of the few instances where they broke and it um revealed a lot of things. It revealed that there were orders coming from the top, it revealed that Sporyashev was running Boryakov, it revealed that TASS was involved. I mean, there was a lot of in that conversation. Was a well, lot now I understand. This is all part of a secret plot to persuade us that the Russians are bumbling fools. It's a very persuasive case that they make, you know. And so it's always like it was like this. They were almost with, you know, gleefully talking about like the one time that they broke operational security and and had to do it in like 15 minutes because apparently somebody in Moscow just really wanted to know about trading robots or something. Okay, so here's my question. Um, because this is what people are talking about right now, today, in both Langley and Moscow, which is, what's the trade? Right. Um, right. You know, whatever you roll them up for, somebody who has non-official cover who's real, uh, Moscow cares about a lot. They value bringing back their people, and that means you can get something in exchange for them. So... Do we know any people who are of interest to the American intelligence community currently living in Moscow mm. who we might want to get back? Mm. You know, but you, I wonder. But you, no, no, but I think you usually trade. You trade for one of your own spies. You trade for one of your own spies, not, not for somebody you want to punish. Um, 
So I don't think it's likely, we're likely to see Snowden's residency revoked over this. But, but I think you do have to just in, in the currency of Cold War is hot kind of yeah. negotiations, we just rolled something up that they will want to get back. And the question is, what do we get in exchange for it? And what are we asking for in exchange for it? Um, and it does come at a time when, you know, Putin is, you know, got a lot on his plate and he does not need an escalation with us in a number of areas. And so I think there is, you know, all jokes aside, there's a possibility that this is an not insignificant strategic uh, benefit to the United States in, in the bilateral relationship. And so, you know, it raises the question, I guess, and this is where I guess the reporting needs to go next, is who is Evgeny Buryakov? I mean, who is this person so valuable? Is he so well placed? Are we? Would the Russians be afraid that if they left him here, he would give up even more information mm -hmm. about Russians in the country under non-official cover, which are you know the deepest of the deep? Um, and would they be willing to trade Snowden for? I mean, I, I think you're, you have to believe that there are people right now at least thinking about the possibility of what if we actually use this to get him back to get Snowden back. I, I mean, it is hard for me to believe. So, for, first of all. I wasn't actually thinking of Snowden when I when, oh, you I, when I raised it. No, no, no. I, I, I mean, Snowden. I, I was. You think were thinking of imprisoned Americans. I was thinking in of you know, but more imprisoned Russian spies who'd worked for the CIA. Right. I mean, look how quickly the um, you know the Anna Chapman ring was traded back once they were rolled up. Right. And the fact that they were clownish did not make them unvaluable as an exchange currency. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and this group is, you know, I mean, worth something. And the question is how much. I, I can't imagine you would get anything as valuable as Edward Snowden in exchange for it. But, but I, there may be people in prison in Russia who will suddenly find that this is the best thing that's ever happened to them. Wow. Well, you know, if the Cold War is back, I'm just... Um a little bit sorry that we won't have the visuals of Checkpoint Charlie for the exchange of prisoners. We should have a set built. For we Charlie. should, just for this purpose. But I will tell you that the next time someone from TAS shows up at my Brookings event and asks a question, I will be paying very close attention. You should pay very And we can attention. ask, you know, who asked you to ask that question. That's right. Who tasked you? <laughs> who Etar tasked you? Yeah, who Etar tasked you? Oh. Was it my friend Boris or <laughs> Natasha? All right. I'm going to spare you any more dramatic reenactments. Um, maybe that could be like in a, you know, a uh, podcast extra. Um, let's move on to uh, object lesson. Ben, why don't you kick us off? Well, I have a very special object, except that it's not quite here yet. It's in the mail. Um, listeners will remember in our first episode, I told the story of my little NSA coin and the fact that uh, I had been the Constitution Day speaker at NSA, but my speech for which I had asked for the audio was still under declassification review and had not yet been cleared for release, though I cannot possibly give a classified speech since I am not cleared to receive classified information myself. Well, it is the power, I think, of listener protests, I'm sure, that NSA was bombarded with uh, requests for my speech. No, I don't know that to be true. 
randomly, perhaps, perhaps because they heard episode one. I uh, received notice the other day that my speech had been cleared and that a DVD is in the mail um, with my September Constitution Day speech. It Did they redact any of your own remarks? I believe it is was cleared in its entirety, and we're going to uh, run it as an episode of the Lawfare podcast, nice. Constitution Day in January, February. It's a little late, um, but uh, late. <laughs> keep an ear out. And so my object is a DVD that is traveling in the mail as we speak. It is virtual. And, it, and I, I don't want to believe that this is not a coincidence that they actually heard uh, and were shamed into speeding up the declassification. No, I think process. this is clearly an example of the impact that this podcast clearly. is going to have. The power, the power yeah. of the Some podcast. metadata filter caught this yes. and, you know, someplace. They said, ooh, <laughs> let's listen to that podcast. And we did, we did determine that you didn't say anything in the speech about, like, security procedures for getting in the building or anything like, you know, the way the windows look or something. There was nothing in the speech that could have even remotely raised a concern about well, there was the part where I talked about how, you know, Admiral Rogers, you know, had those mics planted on. No, I'm kidding. Aside <laughs> from um, that, no, there, there was nothing, nothing remotely sensitive yeah. in the speech. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think, the, you know, had I asked, as I said the, a couple of weeks ago, had I asked um, tr for the Q&A portion of the speech, that could have involved some sensitivity because people right. did say things that could conceivably identify them. Um, but I didn't. I specifically asked only for my remarks. And I think it was just caught in a kind of a lot of the same bureaucratic uh, rigmarole that everything has to go through in order to get out of the, that building. And that's, you know, one of the reasons it's so hard for them to talk in the public arena. Yeah, yeah. Well, your words are free and, and on the way. Um, Tamara, what is your object to speak? Okay, well, I am holding here and, and will share with all of you a photograph of my uh, not very expensive blue fountain pen. And, and I want to use this fountain pen not merely to point out that I am a real sentimentalist, that I still write with a fountain pen, um, but also to make a proposal to the two of you, uh -oh. Shane and Ben. Uh, as, as some of our... Uh, really attentive listeners or listeners who are also Twitter users might have noticed, uh, Ben has been tweeting at House of Cards, uh, the House of Cards Twitter account, uh, tweeting about the Rational Security Podcast and getting responses. Uh, and from House of Cards? From House of Cards, indeed. So President Underwood uh, seems to be paying attention to the Rational Security Podcast. Last week, Ben pointed out that uh, the, the podcast episode revealed that I was a broadsword enthusiast, and he posed the question whether Frank Underwood was as well. And House of Cards replied, uh, noting that the pen is mightier than the sword, Aha. but that they keep their options open, which, of course, President Underwood always does. Uh, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to say I agree that the pen is mightier than the sword. In fact, my blue fountain pen is mightier than my broadsword. Uh, and, that, both, and both hang on in, or in your office. And both hang out in my office. But I would like to nominate President Frank Underwood as the patron saint of the Rational Security Podcast. Well, so, so we, yeah, I think I second this nomination. And I want to point out that the Rational Security Twitter feed has begun sending President Underwood 
interview questions on matters of national security. The first question that we sent was whether he supports closing Guantanamo. We're going to see whether House of Cards responds. Um, and if does, we'll, we'll see what President Underwood thinks about drone strikes. We'll see all and drunk of, droning and dr- drunk drone and drones on the on the White House lawn. Lots of questions. So if you guys have questions for national security questions for President Underwood, tweet them at the Rational Security Podcast, and we will try to keep this interview going. Um, and we'll see how much we can pin Frank Underwood down on the critical national security, legal, and other questions facing America. Yeah, well, he has, a, he has a big season ahead of him. Obviously, House of Cards comes back with President Underwood. So, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's challenge him. Let's do it. Okay, right on. Uh, so my object lesson, uh, actually, I'm going back to episode one of National Security as well. So listeners will remember that I had brought in a, uh, a rock, which was a, a sort of a long story about talking about how my... Uh, uh, family had recently come upon my grandfather's World War II records. And I had been looking for these when I was young and never was able to find them. So they finally arrived in the mail. I had them shipped back to my grandmother's house. And it's, it's an astonishing amount of paperwork. It's, it's really something. A friend of mine, uh, <clears throat> who is a, a lawyer with a lot of experience looking through very old records uh, of his own grandfather, actually, uh, we got together the other night and looked at these. And he, was, he said, you know, the things that you're finding here you never would have found in a FOIA request. And so the object actually I brought in today is a copy of his pilot's log, uh, where you can actually open it up and you can see, you know, there's his name. He died before I was born, wow. I should note too. We have the same middle name. Um, in my grandfather's handwriting, all the day-to-day that he actually went through uh, to be trained in how to fly various cargo aircraft. Uh, and it's just, it's really, I mean, it's, it's, the reason this is really interesting for me personally is, you know, these are sort of very, tangible links to someone I never knew and and who really my family never really told a lot of stories about other than they said that you know you would have gotten along with them very well which is you know not saying a lot I'm sure we would have but uh, I'm something of a World War II buff as well so I brought this in a just to sort of show people very uh, you cool. know what was had come out of that but the more to me interesting thing is um, his flight rosters and it, the rosters of the people that he flew with and photographs of the people he flew with were also found in the records. So what I am going to undertake, and I'll, and I'll tweet about this on my own Twitter feed at Shane Harris, and maybe we'll talk about it more on the podcast later, uh, I'm going to try and find, if they are still alive, the people who flew with him. You know, probably, Shane, I'm sensing a book in this. There could be. There could, there could be. There could be something in the offing. Uh, but, could uh, be at war. Part two with Granddad. Yeah, for with Granddad. The, the time travelers. <laughs> the prequel. Exactly. It's going it's it's to be like the the fourth, fifth, and sixth Star Wars movies. Um, so yeah. So I will. Um, I will t- uh, on my own Twitter feed. I'll tweet out some photographs of these people and um, try to find them. So uh, follow me at Shane Harris, and uh, maybe we'll do it on the Rational Security Twitter feed as well. And if you recognize anyone in these photos or their names. Uh, please contact me and let me know, and maybe I could find some really cool stories uh, about my grandfather. Um, so that brings us to the end of the episode. Um, tomorrow, would you like to tell everyone where to find us after they're finished listening to this episode four? Uh, you can find us on Facebook at uh, Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Please like us on Facebook. If you are on iTunes and that's where you download the podcast, please give us a five-star review. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Follow us on Twitter as well at 
at R-A-T-L Security. Uh, we are, you can also follow Tamara at, uh, at T-C Wittes, W-I-T-T-E-S. You can follow me at, at Benjamin Wittes, all strung together like it's one word. And you can follow Shane at, at Shane Harris. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our editor is the estimable Jennifer Howell. That's it. Thank you for listening to episode four. I'm Shane Harris. On behalf of my friends Benjamin Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, we will see you next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.